Jenna has been doing a series called The Lifestyle of Jesus, and I noticed that a lot of her readings came out of the Gospel of Luke. So I thought, well, why don't I find something there as well and kind of build on that same theme, The Lifestyle of Jesus. And so I have a little piece from the um, last part of Luke chapter 10. It's a familiar story, I'm sure, to many of you. It's a story of Mary and Martha and the time Jesus visited their place. And uh, it's just a short piece, five verses long. But I will mention before I start reading it that it comes just after the story of the Good Samaritan. And there's with a bit of a connection there. We'll explore that along the way. But uh, in any event, here is Jesus at the home of Martha and Mary, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparation that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but um, I, when I read this story, I, I feel kind of bad for Martha. I mean, Jesus was not very nice to her, don't you think? I mean, after everything she did for him. I mean, she was trying to be the, the perfect hostess. I mean, she heard that Jesus was coming, and, and she, she got busy. She prepared a menu, she went for groceries, and she got into the kitchen and got to work. And when Jesus arrived, and, you know, from the sound of it, he might have come kind of early, she wasn't ready. And she wanted some help. So what could be wrong with that? And yet Jesus says, no, 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 Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Mary has chosen what is better. I mean, couldn't he show Martha some consideration? You know, I've known a lot of Martha-type people over the years. Churches need them. I mean, we would have to close the doors in a week without people like her. You know, you look at any church bulletin or website, you read appeals for volunteers. We need volunteers for this event. We need volunteers for council, for committee work. And uh, we, you know, the church simply has to have them. I have a lot of respect for the Martha people of the church. I think of my own mother. You know, in her best years, she was Martha all the way. She was, a, she was a doer, like a willing worker type, always ready to make a, another pot of coffee. And for years, she uh, hosted these dinners for the, the school, the, the Christian school. And, you know, this is Ontario where there's no government funding whatsoever, so there's a lot of fundraisers going on, and she would put them on. She would prepare a menu, she would round up some volunteers, and they'd serve a dinner, sometimes to several hundred people. She was very good at it. And that made it really hard for us children to, to watch her age and to see the dementia set in. She became confused, she became forgetful, she wasn't herself anymore. 
Um, in the end, she didn't even recognize her own children. But in her best years, she was Martha all the way. And that's why I want to stick up for the Marthas of the Bible, because I'm sticking up for my own mother, and I'm sticking up for people like her. You could say that here are people that, that have the gift of service and the gift of hospitality. And if you listen to Paul's listing of the spiritual gifts, you will find those things in there. So they're good things. So what did Martha do wrong? Now, I'll give you a bit of history here. There was a time uh, many years ago when this story of Mary and Martha got extra attention. During the, what they sometimes call the monastic period, when the first monasteries were being formed and the monasteries were being built, then this story was used as proof that the best life for a Christian was the monastic life, the contemplative life, the life in which you retreat from the world and, and separate yourself and devote your life to, to prayer and to that kind of merry life. It was sort of like dying to the world and its cares and putting yourself permanently at the feet of Jesus. It's almost something like being a martyr for Christ. Now, before this uh, age of the monasteries, when the first monasteries were going up, uh, there were actual martyrs for Christ. There were people who died, who died because they were followers of Jesus. And it began almost right away. In the, gospel of, um, in the book of Acts, we already read about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, stoned to death by a mob for his, his preaching of the word. And soon after that, we hear about a great persecution that broke out against the church, and people were scattered, almost like seeds into the wind. And that was just the beginning. Uh, for the first few hundred years of the church, Persecution came in waves, and it'd be fierce, and then it'd be less serious, and then fierce again. It's almost like a pandemic of persecution that just kept returning. And then it, it stopped. The persecution simply stopped, and quite suddenly. And it stopped because the emperor, Emperor Constantine, was converted he became a Christian. And sometime after that, he put out a ruling, an edict, the Edict of Milan, and said that Christianity would be tolerated throughout the empire. So it was okay to be Christian, not dangerous anymore. In fact, after a while, it became easy to be a Christian. It even became an advantage to become a Christian because it could get you a good job with the government. If people knew you're Christian, it'd be good for your business. And so the church grew very rapidly. Although the reasons were sort of open to question. You know, some people looked at this new growth of the church, and they weren't entirely impressed. They, they looked back to that time of persecution, and they said, you know, that was the worst of times. 
but it's also the best of times. It was the best of times because it produced a faith that was strong and sturdy. It, it wasn't phony. It wasn't for show. It sure wasn't for the money. It was for the, the pure love of Jesus, ready to pay any price. And now we have this more easy, more tolerant time, and it's, it's just not the same anymore. And so some, they, they kind of looked for ways to go back to that deep, that deep devotion of, of the age of the martyrs. And out of that, there, one of the things that came out of that was the monastic movement. Men and women would take vows, vows of, vows of celibacy. They, they would never marry or have children. Uh, vows of obedience to their religious superiors. And, and vows of poverty. They were not in this for the money. And in this way, they said, we, we die to the world and we put ourselves into the place where God is surrounding us at all times. And one proof they offered for this ideal was the story of Mary and Martha. Martha, they said, chose to be in the world. She chose a worldly life. She chose to be worried and upset about many things. And Mary, she simply rested at the feet of Jesus and listened. And Jesus said himself that she chose what was better. Now, that age of the monasteries is, is deep in the past now. Um, there are some monasteries still in, in, open and in operation, uh, including some in the Fraser Valley. But even there, they're not going to tell you that, you know, life in the world is no good and life in the cloister or the monastery is far superior. I mean, we now know and we all understand that this whole world belongs to God, every part of it. And that all of life is religion. And that every kind of work can be service to God. You know, Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, he said that every occupation has its own honor before God. So whatever work you may be doing, whether it's on the farm or in the shop or in the kitchen, it is a form of service to God. We, we, we serve God by serving our neighbor, by providing for their needs. We provide food for them. We provide shelter for them. We teach their children. We take care of them when they are ill. This is work in the world, but it is good work, and it's, a, and it's been blessed by God. So then, what, 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 what did Martha get wrong? when she was worried and upset about many things. Now it's worth mentioning here that this little story comes immediately after the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now he, Jesus tells a story about this traveler on the road to Jericho. He's attacked by bandits. They steal from him, then they beat him within an inch of his life. And he's lying there, broken, bleeding. And then we have these two men, first a priest, then a Levite, and they 
walk up the road and they see him, they cross to the other side and they go past. Now these were, you might call them religious professionals. I mean, they were always busy with the things of God. And yet somehow for them, the things of God didn't include helping a victim of a severe beating. And, you know, if you read the commentaries, you might find something somewhere between an explanation and an excuse. Maybe they thought the, the victim was actually dead, and if they touched a corpse, they would be defiled and not be able to perform their religious services. Maybe that. But reading the whole story, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus had in mind. Because he told about the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan who came. Now, in those days, Samaritans were considered second-rate believers. Hardly believers at all, really. And yet, as Jesus tells the story, it was the Samaritan who took pity on the victim. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, two, two days' pay, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And did you notice? The Good Samaritan did a lot of Martha stuff there. And did Jesus approve? Yes, he approved, of course. He said, go and do likewise. And so, again, what, what, what did Martha get wrong here? Jesus said that she was worried and upset about many things. And we know sort of what those many things were. I mean, she wanted to be the perfect hostess. She had to, you know, make the menu, get the groceries, do the cooking, prepare the, you know, uh, the appetizers and the entree and the dessert and make sure the wine was good. She had to... Uh, if, if she were doing it today, she'd want to make sure she had the right centerpiece for the table and all the place settings in their proper order and even make sure that the salad forks were chilled. I mean, this is the kind of thing that good hostesses do. People who are blessed with the gift of hospitality. And that in its own way, in its own place, is, is a wonderful thing. But we do have to stop here and ask a question. Ask a question of Martha. You have to ask Martha, Martha, do you realize who you have in your house right now? It's not just anybody. You have Jesus in your house. And you know what he's doing? He is teaching. He is sharing his deep, profound wisdom. And your sister is at his feet, and she is just soaking it all in. And Martha, right now, in this moment, that is the better thing. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you, you, you're caught again and again how, how people were so taken, so amazed at Jesus' teaching. He spoke, they said, as one with authority. So his words had great moral force. They, they had the power to change people deep within. Jesus told stories about 
about uh, seed that fell on poor soil and didn't grow, and then other seed that fell on good soil and grew big and beautiful. She told about sheep that got lost and about shepherds that went out looking for them until they found them. She told about a son, a prodigal son, who wasted half the father's estate in a wild party in a far country. And then he told about a father who waited so patiently with a father's heart for a son to come back. Jesus taught us how to forgive and to be forgiven, how to love and to be loved. He, he said that we have to be born again, that we have to become like children, that the greatest among us have to become the servants of all. I mean, this is the stuff he taught. And Martha, Martha, you must make time for this. Now, does that mean all the things you were busy with were wrong? No, they're not wrong. But it would be so much better if you first took in the teaching of Jesus, if you were formed by his words and his wisdom. Then everything you were busy with would be changed. You would be doing it the way Jesus did it. Now that, that's a big lesson for Martha. And I think in our time it's a big lesson for us. Because we're living in a crowded and busy time. Sometimes it's been called the consumer culture. And that tells you we're busy with things, consumer products. And they can crowd us and make us worried and upset. Life can become one endless chain of consumer emergencies. I've got to have this now. And meanwhile, Jesus can get lost. The most important one gets crowded out. But we need to make room for him. Because if you have him in your heart, everything is different. You know, I've been, um, I've been Christian Reformed my whole life. And, and one thing that makes me quite proud and happy to be Christian Reformed is something called World Renew. And some of you know it very well. World Renew is our relief and development organization. And they do a bunch of different things sort of around the world. Um, they do things like uh, literacy programs, um, child and newborn health, um, agronomy, like food production and good agricultural stewardship of the land. Um, when disasters strike, earthquakes, floods, fires, then World Renew shows up with emergency supplies, clean water, food, shelter. They work with partners around the world on such things. They also work on structural issues, structural injustices that make people poor and keep people poor and, you know, look for ways to sort of take those barriers down. And then there are all those green t-shirts, people going around the world on their own time to rebuild places that have been destroyed in some catastrophe. This is world renew stuff. It's also a lot of Martha stuff. Now, would Jesus approve? Of course he would approve. 
Because we live in a world with a lot of hurt, and we need to do our part. But Jesus would also want us to know that this work is become so much richer when it's done by people who know Jesus deeply. Those literacy workers, their work would be so much better if the literacy workers knew Jesus well. Those agronomists, the, the food production, the soil protection people, their work would be so much richer if they knew the spirit of Jesus. Those uh, people fighting for justice, their work would be so changed if they lived by the Sermon on the Mount and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those people in green t-shirts, their work would be so much more meaningful if they were Christ-like because they knew the good news and taken it into their heart. They had truly become the hands and the voice of Jesus here in the world. You know, Martin Luther said a whole bunch of nice things about work in the world. Um, and he said, whether you're working on the farm or factory or home, your work has honor before God. But there is also a lot of Mary in Luther. He really knew how to spend time at the feet of Jesus. I mean, he was addicted to the Bible. He read it long and read it deep. He called it the most amazing fountain. Because the more you drink of it, the more thirsty you become for more. And for prayer, he said that a life without prayer is like life without breathing. It can't be done. So he knew what it meant to grow deep in faith and hope and love. So let's pray for a spirit of quiet. Let's pray for a spirit of listening. Let's pray for hearts that are open and minds that are ready to receive the wisdom of Jesus. Because when you live out of faith and hope and love rooted in him, everything becomes so much better. Now, your life might feel awful crowded. You might have a calendar that's chock full of things to do. You might have a phone that's beeping notices at you all the time. There's always one more thing to do, one more person to contact, one more email to write. It gets really, really crowded. It gets busy. And busy can be good. Jesus wants us to be busy. The one who has five talents is supposed to earn five more. And the person who has two talents is supposed to earn two more. And the person with one talent had better not bury that talent in the ground. Jesus wants to find us busy. But he wants to find us busy in his way. In hearts that are changed by his spirit. Have you got time for him? Let's pray. Dear Lord, Jesus calls us into a life of service. A life where we 
give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, where we clothe those who are naked, where we visit those who are sick and in prison. Again and again, we're called to give our time and our effort to Christian service. But let us always remember, Lord, that all this comes from you and through you and in you. And a heart that is changed becomes a life that is lived well. And the busyness of that life becomes a good busyness, a Christ-filled busyness. So teach us to also be merry, to sit at your feet, to listen, to learn, and to love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.